Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Excited today to be joined by Kathleen Delasky, who's the founder and CEO of the Education Design Lab. We're going to be talking about how the work to learn and learn to work ecosystem is evolving. There's a really interesting white paper that we'll be digging into as part of the conversation. But before we get to any of that, I want to welcome Kathleen to the show. Kathleen, welcome to Trending in Education. Thanks very much for having me, Mike. Yeah, it's fa it's fantastic to have you. And we always begin with our guest's origin story. What got you to this point in your professional life? How'd you get here? What what got you to this point in your career? Let's see. I'm getting near the end of my career than I'd like to admit. I don't know how far back to go for my origin story of why the Education Design Lab. So. I, I, I probably like to start where, remember the year of the MOOCs, when MOOCs came out, right? So that was like 2012, mm -hmm. and everybody got excited about the democratization of learning because anyone was going to be able to take a Stanford AI course or you know, learn data analytics without having to pay for it. And it was going to be this wonderful new, new era of democratic learning. Yeah, I, I, I heard it, it might have even been disruptive. Yeah, exactly right. But the, that coupled with the entrance of many VC funds and a, a lot of private capital coming into higher ed, it was like the next area to be disrupted. I, I at the time, was sitting on the board of George Mason University, which is uh, in the state of Virginia, where I live. It's the largest degree-granting university, public, and it's also minority-majority. And um, its tagline is where innovation is tradition. And it's the youngest public university in the state. Anyway, I, I say all this to say it was poised to be super innovative. It kept winning, you know, U.S. News's World Reports awards for, for innovation. But yet I was working with the new president there. It was very hard to get the kind of innovation done in a university that, you know, that, that sort of stood for this. Super hard to get it done because of all the constraints, some regulatory, some the tenure rules, everything. So we decided to work together to start something that would live on the outside of the university that would basically be both a sandbox for innovation around that focused on what we've come to call the new majority learner. Mm. And by that, we mean all the subgroups and demographics uh, of people for whom college was never originally designed, which now, and we say majority because now that's, it's, we, we calculate that it's about 70% of all learners. It's really, okay, why aren't we designing college for these folks? Yeah. And at that time, the new president, his name is Angel Cabrera, who's now gone on to be the president of Georgia Tech. But we, we set, set up this like kitchen cabinet with some other presidents and I left the board. I'd been on the board for eight years. I left the board to start this nonprofit. Mm -hmm. I, I also happened, luckily, to have a family foundation. So I was able to seed the beginnings of, of the lab. Mm -hmm. and, and we started out by doing a series of what we called design challenges around the innovations that needed to happen on behalf of learners. Mm -hmm. And we used a design thinking process, which was coming into vogue at the time. Yeah. Um, and it was really useful in, in higher ed, we found, because you could really focus the problem statement and the, the design question around the learner's needs. Right. Um, and so that's how we got off and running. And so that's why then, why the lab? 
I didn't really say where I came from before that. I mean, I had a very varied career starting as a journalist. Mm. And as I look back now, I think all the things I did before were great for setting me up to do this work. And I, I see this as my last big rodeo. And, and so it's exciting to look back and say, oh, 15 years of journalism, that was helping me be the storyteller and the investigator that I needed to be and the fundraiser, because I feel like that's very helpful. I spent uh, a little bit of time in government. Bill Clinton appointed me to be the first spokesman for the Pentagon, the first female spokesman for the Pentagon. Mm. And that was in 1993 when mm. there was an awful lot going on uh, yeah. in the world. Mm -hmm. the, the Berlin Wall had just come down and mm -hmm. you know, communism was at that point, you know, thought to be ending. And, and I learned a lot about how to move, how to work politically in bureaucracies and how to be a crisis manager, spokesman for crises. So that was a really useful set of tools. Yeah. I then, I then went to this little startup when I left the Pentagon. It was called America Online. And it, that was the first uh, company that, that sort of built the training wheels for consumers to use the internet. Yeah. And I, I was able to be at the frontier of that. It was really interesting. And we built a lot of the consumer really uh, channels and, and, and products, the like the first versions of them. Yeah. Uh, and, and learned about, you know, how do you meet the needs of information? I was, I ran the news channel and the mm. parents channel, and I, I developed all the, the election coverage for what does online election coverage look like. Wow. And yeah. it, it was really fun. Yeah. Uh, but I feel like that really helped me learn about products. Like, how do you think about digital what are the digital opportunities and, and needs and, and access and digital divide, all those issues I, I learned about. Right. And then I went into education after that. I went to Sally May as a senior executive, started their foundation and really got involved in education, finance, higher ed. Mm -hmm. Also worked with charter schools for a while in the K-12 space, became a funder at the Walton Family Foundation. So, you know, I, I, yeah. I did all these things. And it sounds like I jumped around a lot. I actually didn't. I'm just really old. Uh, and so I, I feel like all those things prepared me to to start and run this education design lab, which was trying to almost create a new type of nonprofit intermediary that could really think about how do you begin? What's happening is the disintermediation of learning, you know, af, af, this is, we're talking about after high school, right? So post-secondary, yep. the disintermediation of learning, we can harness that so that the learner is empowered and we called it the learner revolution yeah or there can be a lot of doors closed and problems from this because we're taking away the supports that exist in a traditional college and that's that was the problem we began to try to solve at both the institution level and at the ecosystem level yeah yeah fascinating stuff and we could get into a lot of what you brought up there the the area that i think we wanted to really zero in on is the skills-based thinking mm -hmm. And this white paper that you just put out is about skills visibility, why and how a skills-based economy can be more equitable. Those are themes that have been huge, particularly in the last couple of years. And I've had a lot of folks talk to me about going skills-based. There's been more talk lately about technology solutions that allow us to get away from these monolithic credentials and get into more micro credentials that perhaps can build up, but also may not build up to a degree. It seems like a real radical transformation from the traditional credit hour and the traditional credentialing system that we have in two-year and four-year colleges. 
now that you're sitting a little bit outside, you're, you're working on this stuff. Can you just characterize where we are and maybe describe a little bit of the problem space that the design lab is working in? Yes, absolutely. You know, we're, some of us are in what we might call the hype bubble and we think it's all here. Uh, and then you go somewhere else and you talk about it and people say, well, what do you mean by the skills-based economy? Like, what, what are you talking about? And so in reality, when we ask ourselves, how far out are we from this vision, assuming we pull it off, I would say that we won't see the benefits of a skills-based economy, you know, really for another probably five years, the beginnings of the benefits. And we won't see like full, full utilization of some of the power of it for probably 10 years. Mm -hmm. And then, okay, well, what is, what is that promise or what is that power? All of us got excited about, quote, the skills-based economy when we saw people starting to do, let's say, boot camps, a coding boot camp, and then getting hired, right? Somebody who maybe had struggled in community college or didn't have time to go sit in classes because they had to work or care for an elderly parent. We're seeing them go to a boot camp, get a get a job, and then they're making, you know, like seventy thousand a year or something. Yeah. You know, that that's when people got started, okay, wait, maybe we can how do we bottle this and offer this to everyone? And how do we get it beyond coding and get it yeah. into healthcare or advanced manufacturing? And at the same time, community colleges in particular were losing a lot of um, a lot of enrollment. And people weren't sure why after the Great Recession. It was down about 10% over that decade from 2008 to 2017, 18. And then with the pandemic, enrollment in community colleges had, has dropped another 10% on top of that. Mm. And so now we're at you know, 20% in many places and sometimes some places more. And particularly for communities of color, communities of, of economically less well-off folks. And so people are asking, okay, are they going to boot camps? Or are they just, are they hacking the system mm -hmm. because we're not designing community college, which is so much cheaper to work for them? Mm -hmm. Maybe we need to redesign community college. And, and that's what you see a lot of going on now in the community college space. And so the skills visibility paper that we did is trying to step back from individual stakeholders, colleges, employers, the states, for example, and say, okay, Let's put the learner first. Let's put the learner at the center of this and ask, how does it need to work for the learner? What's broken about the skills hiring system? And what would be an optimal state? How should it look? If we can get to a world where you are hired for what you can do rather than where you went to school or who you know, and that's the basic premise. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really interesting around the importance of visibility and transparency. Some of this reminds me a little bit of the conversations around salary transparency, when there's inequities around access to information that frequently drives some of the other inequities in an ecosystem. I did think it was particularly striking that there is a connection between the skills-based economy and equity. Can you help connect the dots for us on how going skills-based ultimately addresses some of the inequities that are in, inherent to the current system? Absolutely. Because yeah, it's not, it doesn't jump out at you immediately. You have to think about it for a minute. Skills visibility is really about making the skills of, that a learner already has it makes them visible to employers and it makes them visible to themselves. In other words, let's say that you're in a boot camp or you're in a course and you're learning how to 
become a cloud technician, which is a very, very popular role to train for these days. Let's say in the past, you get to a engineering degree after two years, but you can't actually speak to the skills that you are earning along the way. You can't name them on your resume so that they can be seen by a possible employer who might be, you know, putting in search to look for, you know, I need somebody who can do, do this, demonstrating this particular subskill. So now we're basically creating a currency around skills as we move to a world where everyone is going to be, or, you know, most people for larger companies, your first entry point will be a nameless, faceless search algorithm that's looking for these particular skills. And that's how you'll be identified and judged and whether you get into the interview pile for a job or not. So, you know, if we don't help people translate their resumes to skills-based, they're going to be left behind. Mm -hmm. And if we do help them, the other thing it really helps with is, is your social network issues or your professional networks. If you don't have, you know, you don't know people who are in these roles or who could help you, your aunt works at AWS and can help you get hired there. If you don't have that, this is democratizing to, you know, a significant extent because you'll be discovered anyway mm-hmm. if, if an employer is looking for you by skills. And so that many employers, many organizations and nonprofits in some states are starting to create these marketplaces that help talent find employment. IBM's doing things like this. Some of the badging platforms like Credly are doing it. So you're, you're seeing a, a, a matching system going on. But that means that you, the worker, the learner, the applicant have to speak skills because if you just put AAS degree in something, 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 that's not going, they're not going to find you because your information can't be ingested properly by the, by the algorithms or by the, by the applicant tracking systems is what they're called. Right. Yeah. It's all really interesting too, because it does reminds me of, uh, Thomas Kuhn, the structure of scientific revolutions where It's a different paradigm than the old one and paradigms frequently just shift. You know, there's an incremental piece, but then a sea change. And then before you know it, we're in this new reality. I would like to get some of your perspective on how the change is already happening. You know, I like to quote, uh, William Gibson, the future is here now. It's just not very evenly distributed. Mm-hmm. It sounds like in some ways, these community colleges are actually the, the drivers of innovation and drivers of some of the experimentation and reimagining of the model. I did like in this white paper, you're writing up some of these examples with some detail. Can you share with us an example or two just to describe how innovation is being driven by some of these real life examples in in our education system today? Sure. A, A great example. So we're working with 22 community colleges around the country that they're really working to reimagine the role of the community college in their regions, right? Moving away from, okay, we have the course catalog and you can, you can take what you want. And it's more like a mini college, mini university program, and you might go on to university or you might get the, you know, an AA associate's degree. Yeah. So that, that model won't go. We hope that model doesn't go away. It's definitely eroding. We, we support that model and so do the colleges we're working with, but it's not going to sustain them because many people are turning away from that model and many learners. And the reason we, we think 
is that they want faster, more you know, definite tracks to specific roles and careers that they can see. They want that visibility to see, okay, if I take that 10-week course, what job can I get? And then, oh, and after, okay, while I'm in that job, what other course could I take part-time to get to the, a, a salary increase? And we have examples like on our website, we could, t- we could you know, send people to that show, they're called micro pathways and they're stackable to a degree, but you don't have to get the degree. So people want that flexibility that's becoming really clear, particularly after COVID, mm-hmm. where people want, th- want roles that they can jump you know, to adjacent roles. They want to be able to know how much money am I going to make in that role? And it's got to be, I don't want to say it's more transactional because a lot of people are thinking about their whole career, but they want it to be like step changes in salary potential. Mm-hmm. They're impatient about it, right? They want it to happen soon because they're busy, they're stressed, and their lives can't accommodate taking two to four years off to go to college. You you describe them as learners with a parentheses around the, the L. So the, the L stands for the learner part, but then they're also earners. And that, that is interesting. I, I liked a lot of your breakdown of the, the stakeholders, learning institutions, learners with the parentheses around the L and employers. Maybe take a beat on each of them just to describe who the stakeholders are and how understanding all of them and how the broader ecosystem works ultimately is beneficial. Absolutely. Thank you. We, we named six categories but this, of, of stakeholder. And the three, the three that we name as key stakeholders in, in, in developing a skills-based economy that lives up to the promise that we just talked about would be education providers. And, and we put training providers in this category too. So not just colleges, could be boot camps and you know, job centers. Um, the second group is employers, obviously. And the third group is states because states have quite a role in providing both the, the platforms, the data, the, the quality control, and, and in many cases, the funding. Mm-hmm. So the, we have a, a little chart that we, that we put together like a Venn diagram that kind of what are the most important jobs to be done to get us to the skills-based economy that we can be proud of from an equity standpoint. And it has things in it like learning providers, and they really need to work on designing flexible competency-based pathways. We call them micro pathways. And competency-based means that the learner is earning, they're, they're, they're getting to mastery of a skill rather than taking a course that says, at the end of it, you're, we can't tell you what you can do, but we can tell you what you've learned about. So they're very much skills-based pathways. And so that's one key job of the learning providers. And the second is to really track efficacy because it's really unfortunate right now, most of the work-based learning that is happening and that's offered at community colleges is not covered by federal financial aid. And that's just historically a situation that relates to it not, you know, it doesn't track to a credit hour. And so there's a big debate in Congress right now, and there's actually a, a bill that's moving through Congress around, you know, what's known as short-term Pell. Would you be able to use your Pell grant, you know, Pell grants or grants for low-income people, it, it, it would help these grants would cover some of these micro pathways and learning opportunities at community college. Currently, lots of times a learner has to pay them for themselves. The good news is they're way cheaper than boot camps. So maybe you're talking about often like $500 for a course versus 
for twenty thousand dollars for a boot camp right. or ten thousand dollars for boot camp. I don't want to overstate the cost of boot camps. So tracking the reason why the feds won't pay for it right now is because they're worried about the efficacy and quality of these work workforce learning tracks. We think they'll get there, but Congress needs to pay for these. <laughs> and so that's so learning providers have a huge role in that. And then the employers also are connected to this ecosystem. Ultimately, the employer needs to buy in. And in some ways, the employer, the employers traditionally have been bought into the, the traditional model of higher education using the bachelor's degree, but this will require a shift to maybe get to move away from that credential and start thinking differently about how they make hiring decisions based on the skills. Yeah, there's a lot of work for employers to do. And the Society for Human Resource Managers, it's called SHRM, just put out a study saying that 70%, 70% of employers want to move to this model. Yeah. But the thing standing in the way, probably, I don't know what the percent that would say they have moved to it. Hardly any would say they fully moved to it. Right. But the thing standing in the way is, is really they're helping their HR managers translate job descriptions to skills, you know, to right. skills based. That, that, that's, and then also that there's technical issues around their in the way that their applicant tracking systems work. Right. So those are the two reasons cited by, by companies. But the good news is they want to do it. So that, so for employers, we see some really interesting initiatives that you've probably heard about where employers are trying to remove their degree requirements. Mm -hmm. That's the first step. Mm -hmm. And the reason they're doing, well, it started after that racial reckoning period in 2020, where everybody, you know, wanted to take a stand about diversifying their workforces and removing barriers which which existed. But they also realized that with the degree requirements, it, you're shutting out 60% of the adult population right there. And, and they can't find enough employees. So they're very incented to remove degree requirements. And now the first state, Maryland, has actually banned degree requirements for their for state roles, which is exciting. And President Trump actually tried to do it for federal roles, and they were working through it when he left office. Yeah. So this is starting to happen. But there's all, all, also been a couple of really nice initiatives. We're working with one of the groups, 110, that has where, you know, CEOs from Fortune 500s are making commitments to hire, in this case, uh, students of color, Af African-American workers in this case, and they're looking at removing degree requirements as a step. Mm -hmm. So that's exciting. Yeah. And then, and then the third stakeholder group, yeah, so that's learning providers, employers, and states. States, yeah, they really need to incentivize adoption of similar credentials and frameworks for these, this currency that we're talking about. Because right now you have almost a million distinct digital credentials out there. So the good news about disintermediating the degree is democratization and access. The bad news is it's a tower of Babel. Right. Um, and we've got that now. And so states have a role in this to incentivize adoption of common open frameworks. And then the other piece they have a really uh, a strong role in is enabling, are, are you familiar with learner wallets? Have you heard about those? Yep. Yeah. So, so those are, we talk about them in the paper. Learner wallets is the concept that you would be able to have your own personal wallet of your skills and manifestations and verifications of all the skills that you have 
that you could, you know, create your own digital identity with and display however you want. Mm-hmm. And it would, you know, be your GED from high school or things you did, like things you did in high school. Yeah. Work expressions of your work. Uh, yeah. I want some high res images of some of my finger painting from my early <laughs> years. Looking ahead, mm-hmm. it sounds like you were saying maybe within the next 10 years, we start to see broader adoption. Can you start connecting where we are today and how you think stuff might unfold? The futurists I talk to say it's good to explore different scenarios for how things might play forward. How might things manifest in terms of a shift to more of a skills-based micro-credentialing, you know, the ecosystem that you're describing, how do we get from here to there? Yeah, that's a great question. We sometimes play a a design game called, you know, good future, bad future, (laughs) Mm -hmm. where you have, we create scenarios in, in what we'd like to see. And then we create scenarios about what might go wrong. And we did a bit of that in this paper. We have a section called if we do it right. And we have a section called if we don't do it right. And in the do it right section, we talk about how the talents and the agency of millions of workers become unlocked and the gap between an individual's training and the fast changing economic needs of their regions or the country are closed. And you don't have a company saying we have 700,000 open job recs that we can't fill, which I think is the last number I heard for AWS. So you're solving economic development problems and agency and skills gap problems. And so those are like just two examples of some of the good future. And the bad future piece is, I think, um, interesting too, because it really looks at the issue of one is this Tower of Babel, like that credentials have no meaning if micro-credentials proliferate and we don't harness and create signal power of some of these credentials, you know, across the land or across, you know, even globally. Yeah. That's one piece. Another is the, is, you know, with, with AI, and we just had a conversation about this, AI is becoming the tool of choice to scale both the assessment and the translation of skills but you know the current state of a, of using AI to do this is is challenged, and so I think and then they are they're painting dystopian futures if we if we're using past data sets as to predict the future, mm-hmm. we're really just we're just promulgating or advancing the existing prejudices and bias and unequal valuing of skills and identity right. And perspectives. Right. Yeah, and then and, th- and then the other thing you hear about is the decentralization. <laughs> And the idea that the community can federate itself. So some of the emerging technology around the blockchain frequently gets equated with the problem space that we're talking around, talking about around skills. It does feel like there is some potential, especially if you talk about a 10 year horizon where AI and the blockchain, I imagine there's also capital moving in this direction around technology startups. Any way to, to shape up what's going on there from your perspective? It's always hard because everybody's, the AI companies, it's easier. I think there'll be winners there. You're already seeing some of that happen. There are groups that are trying to become the marketplace platform, but a lot of groups, because this is where their VC backers push them, are picking point solutions and they're working on a small piece of the problem. Yeah. And they're not, you know, you can't really tell whether they're going to be able to grow into their skin or into their, you know, aspirations. So I'm struggling to see who is the Uber 
of this ecosystem because if there is one and if it's private we're, we're frankly we're all in trouble <laughs> right, right because yeah because it'll be a closed technology platform if you could imagine that uber was in charge of your wallet and it was right. your wallet and you had to i don't know and you were dependent on them to have access to it we do have that issue with social media with yeah. facebook or even your google photos like it's scary to think wow my everything I own is with a private company that, you know, what if they get yeah. hacked or something yeah. happened to them? Or, or they get bought by a billionaire capitalist. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> like, in, like in, the, in the case of Twitter. But, uh, but yeah, it, it is, it's an interesting, it, it makes me wonder about, is there a, a DARPA mm. angle to this too, where if you think about how the internet got started, it was the, your old friends at the Department of Defense who were behind it a little bit. So that is that's helpful for me where I'm, I hadn't really thought about the, the state and federal. <laughs> There's a huge role here. Yeah. And I love that you're bringing up DARPA because for those of your listeners, who don't, I forget what all the letters stand for, but it's basically the skunk orgs laboratory that the Pentagon created that, that was supposed to work on the around the corner technologies. And we use that, we try to, you know, use that analogy all the time without as, as humbly as possible, because obviously we're not we're not that kind of a lab because we're funded mostly by by private foundations but it is interesting to think through whether i had a kumar garg on a while back and he was talking about how it's almost an accident of history that we don't think about funding education r&d to the level that we fund say defense r&d maybe that's a, a rosier picture for the future is that maybe we can start to free up some of those dollars, but there's only so many dollars to go around. Fascinating stuff. I'm learning as we go. This is why we have these conversations. Hopefully our listeners are enjoying it as much as we are. We're getting closer to conclusion. If folks needed to understand more, where should they go? And maybe after that, we could get some closing thoughts from you. But if folks want to learn more, we'll include the links to the white paper, but there's like a website or anywhere that you could recommend. Yeah, I think our website would be the best place to go if you want to learn about, we, for instance, we have 30 of the micro pathways on the website that the colleges in our fund, we call it the Community College Growth Engine Fund, we have 30 micro pathways that they've created. And that's a great way just to see how the micro pathway concept works. Mm -hmm. So that's eddesignlab.org, um, all, all one word, obviously. And then the paper's there as well. Yeah, we covered a lot. The papers, really, thank you for your service, both you generally yeah. and, and then your organization. It was really eye-opening for me to read through. It wasn't, it was a manageable exercise too. Like it was maybe 30 or so slides and they're visually appealing. A cup of coffee, you can power through it and get get some real insight. If we're trying to bring this to conclusion for folks, any closing remarks, closing comments uh, as we're wrapping up here? I'm just struck every day by how how fast this is moving. And I think COVID is partly responsible for the, I would say, sped up innovation appetite of all the players we've just mentioned. And that's really exciting because what's also sped up, I think, is the recognition that, and because of the talent shortage, that we can't, we shouldn't leave anyone behind. We should start to think about people for the skills they have rather than the degrees we'd like them to aspire to. Mm -hmm. And that's really I think both um, empowering and liberating. And so there's a huge amount of excitement. And a lot of my friends that were working with me in the K-12 side 
are like now coming over to this to work on these what we're calling the school to work or workforce because they see it as like the frontier that's the most open-minded and a lot of capital is flowing in and there's less regulation than there is in K-12. It's just a more interesting, I don't want to say disruptable. It is disruptable, but there's also a lot of people in it right now who are in it for the equity fight. So it's been really fun. Yeah, that's exciting. That's so we're ending on a positive note. There are challenges in K-12 and power, more power to the people who are trying to solve those. But but if you think about the lifelong learning opportunities, the fact that all of us are going to need to continue to brush up on our skills, whether we're formally being educated or not. There's a lot of new awakenings that have happened that do seem to be moving stuff faster towards some of these outcomes. And and hopefully there's some positive scenarios for the future of going skills-based and still leaning on institutions, particularly community colleges and institutions like the Ed Design Lab. Wonderful stuff. Kathleen Delasky, the founder and CEO of the Education Design Lab. Thanks so much for joining us on today's show. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Awesome. And hopefully our listeners enjoyed what you were hearing. Check out the show page. We'll include links to the white paper and the stuff we were discussing here today. If you like what you're hearing, please write us a review. Let your friends know. Do all the good things. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education. <laughs>